So we're in Revelation chapter 3. Uh, two more um, churches to look at uh, this week and then next week. And before we transition to um, our adult class in the morning, we'll be on the subject of Revelation. We're going to be backing up kind of to, to chapter 1, and we'll just skip over this and looking at the, the figurative portions of, of the book. Uh, today, I want to begin with a disclaimer. Uh, we've been talking about the churches and this church and that church. And, uh, and so whenever we talk about churches, some people get a nervous tick, right? Uh, some people get a little nervous about the way we use the word church. So I want to address that. Uh, I don't know if you get a nervous tick or not. Uh, so depending on your background, you might have different reactions to the reference church, right? Uh, some people like to differentiate. I grew up in a, in, a, in a group that really liked to differentiate between the word church and congregation. Anybody familiar with that? Right? Okay, so congregation, where I grew up, that's the local one. That's us right here. We're the Waukesha congregation, right? And church was the overall thing. That was very important uh, to distinguish that. Um, so that's, that's my background, right? Um, we're accustomed to being in the world and, and, and we get a little nervous tick when everyone says like, I'm going to church and right. We're, like, oh, we're the church, the church is not a building. Right. We, we get that nervous tick. Uh, I, I knew a preacher. He says, uh, he says, you know, my brother-in-law's, my brother-in-law's is, is, is uh, sharp as a sack of wet mice, but even he knows he always did that. Uh, he didn't have a brother-in-law. Uh, he, he's, he said, even he knows that if you were going to paint the church, you'd have to swallow a gallon of Sherwin-Williams. You know, that was his famous thing. You have to, we're the church. Right? And, and uh, so I want to talk about that just a little bit. because We, get, we, we like things to be phrased a particular way. And we, we, some of the biggest discussions get over the way things are phrased. So I want to discuss the phraseology of this and uh, how it came to be, the way we use words. Uh, it's not the main point, but this, this, the, the material today is a little bit shorter, so I thought I'd throw this in here. Um, we go back to last week's discussion about how nouns are specific in English, right? And, uh, and, and in the past, they're not always so specific. In Greek, uh, and like some languages, the nouns were a little bit more generalized, especially as time went on. They would add meanings to things. Uh, the word ecclesia means called out. That's what it means, uh, to call out. And, and it specifically referred to, the, the word goes back like six or 700 years before Christ, at least. And, and, and so it's not a religious word at all. Uh, it, it actually first was used to refer to political gatherings. They would, they would gather the townspeople. Remember, Greece is a democracy, right? And, and so the, they would all go out and they would vote, right? These politicians, and, and you could, the, the populace could vote on things. It might be a trial of somebody. And whatever it was, you would get called out. You get called out to a coliseum, right? Uh, typically some open place or whatever. And, and so you, this was the called out. This is the formal assembly, right? And it could be a local thing. It was never used of a, of a body over the entire, you know, nation of, of Greece, the, the, the ecclesia or whatever. Um, the, the way we kind of use it to refer to the worldwide church, if you think of it like, like that. Um, and, and so in time, however, it, within the church, this word became used uh, to signify both a congregation, as we see here, uh, the church in Sardis, right? That's a local congregation. 
what we would call a congregation is a gathering. That's what it means to congregate. And it lit- literally has no difference between that uh, and, the, and the idea of, of an assembly, a, a called out assembly. Assemble and congregate is the same word. They're perfect synonyms. Right? Uh, and, and so a church and a congregation, no difference. And I grew up thinking there's this big difference between these words. No, not, not so. But what about the building? So we, I want to talk about the building. Should we make sure, you know, is it a capital offense to use the word church to refer to the building? Right? Um, and so I want to address that um, a little bit. There's another word. In fact, we've encountered it in, in these churches. We're uh, going to encounter it again. Uh, and it is the word synagogue. It functions very much like the word ecclesia. It's a Hebrew concept. It's a Greek word, but, but by this time, Jews even were speaking Greek. It was the, the world language. It's like English, right? And, and, and so, so the, the Greeks had an idea of their assemblies. If you weren't in the temple, you know, you were out somewhere, you had a, a local assembly, right? And this was called a synagogue, right? It referred to the people. Uh, it referred to, uh, it literally means to lead together, like to call out, lead together for the purpose of worship. And yet, at what we, we see over time is it became, um, yes, Emma, okay, it became a reference to the local building, a synagogue, right? We have one right up the street. I drive by it every time I come to work. We have a synagogue. Why? Because what happened is eventually they had a piece of property that was devoted to that use exclusively. That's what it was. It was a place where they were led together for for worship, for teaching, for whatever. Now, at the time we're talking about, this, uh, this is not happening. Because we're in a time of persecution. So the church didn't own churches or church buildings, if you prefer. That, that won't happen for another 150, 200 years. We, we read in the, 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 in the book of Acts, so, or, or we'll read about the church in their house, right? The church in their house. They met in locations where it was a dual function. And its primary function was for something else. The primary function was a home. So the location would have been called a church because it was a home, right? That was, that was what it was. Hundreds of years later, they start to be able to be free. Constantine issues his Edict of Milan, which forbids, uh, it forbids persecution of Christianity. His mother was converted. Not so great a person, Constantine himself, uh, but but he at least forbade persecution. Churches start owning property, and now they can have a Christian version of the synagogue. We can come here, and so far as I know, this building is not used for any other function. So if you want to come to the church people would recognize that this is what you're talking about. Because what we do here 
Baptist church. It's local. So, so uh, you won't be fined. Right? We're not going to institute any fines or, or other type of, of punishments. Now that we've said that. We do get so easily upset about things that don't matter. Don't we? Here are churches with significant obstacles. And if only they had something to argue about, such as the word ecclesia and how it should be used. They would have loved for that to be highest on their priority list of things to worry about. So today we, may, we meet a church faced with obstacles, but not of their own making. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, beginning. He says, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, these things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the keys of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. You have a little strength. You've kept my word. You've not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not. They lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to persevere. I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world and test those who live on the earth. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have. So that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of my, the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which came down out of heaven from my God. And I, was, I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I want to talk about the obstacles because we've talked about a church with obstacles. And he says they have little strength. Now we need to... delve into that a little bit. What does he mean by a little strength? So we would first understand from the context that this is not an insult. If this appeared in some of the other churches, the the other descriptions there, we might perceive it as an insult. You know, if if you're called weak, that's kind of an insult. But he's not using this as an insult. Um, He's talking some disadvantaged situation. There's, There's some condition that this church finds themselves in, that, that they're compromised, they're weaker. They don't have the ability to resist as much. Not because of their own quality, but a condition. Now we should note that it's not financial. How I know that? Because we've met a church that had financial problems. And Christ pointed it out. I know your poverty, but you're rich. So if this was a financial issue, he would have said it's a financial issue. But it's not. He doesn't say what it is. Maybe the church is small. This is a small city. This is not Smyrna. This is not Pergamos. This is not... The city, by this point, had only been in existence for, for 200 years. Um, and even today, it's only, I think, 40,000 people. So you go back in time and just do the math. 
This is a small area. So maybe it's their size. Well, a small city probably has a small congregation. That could be one of the things. Maybe it lacked influential people. You know, a lot of, a lot of churches, you go through the book of Acts or, or, or some of these, and you find influential people that became, and it will say, you know, and, and uh, several of the prominent women uh, became Christians or, or various things. And some, sometimes it's nice to have political connections, isn't it? It's nice to have people that know people. I was in, uh, in Nicopol, and we, we had people that uh, kind of knew people, and it helped our church get registered, which is kind of a difficult process in Ukraine. And, and, and we had to get the right zoning for our land to use it in the middle of a residential area to use it for a church. And we had to have all the, the people around have to agree and all this. And we kind of knew someone that had, you know, been a mayor that previously. That kind of helps. Right? A lot of these things help. They help you resist some things. They didn't have that advantage, apparently. We find churches in the book of Acts that were primarily female. Now, this is not a sexist statement, but in a world run by men, that's a disadvantage. Right? And like Smyrna, they have a problem with the local Jewish populace. Now, I want to go back. We're don't, not going to repeat that sermon, but this is not against Jews in general. Because we find Jews complimented, like in the, in the, in the city of Berea, he's, he calls them noble-minded. They weren't Christians even, but they were noble-minded. But it's a, a, a subgroup of a Jewish population that has adopted some type of philosophy or something. He says, they have a name that they're Jews and they're not. They don't hold to traditional Jewish values. Maybe, again, this, this Greek influence of philosophy that, that's coming on the whole world called Gnosticism. They're coming up from Alexandria. Maybe that's at the root of this particular group. Don't know. A lot of things we don't know. But it is an oppressive group. It surrounds this church and they are weak. And these are the obstacles, possibly more. We find, however, in the midst of this, we find the promise of God. I'm going to talk about the hour of trial. What is the hour of trial? Not literal. I can handle an hour. It's a, a period of time. Coming on the whole world, the whole world, the whole area, not necessarily Iceland is going to feel this whatever hour of trial, but, but in a Roman world, in a Roman empire, something was going to be pervasive throughout it. There are lots of commentaries, and as many commentaries as there are, they all have a different opinion. So, so we, it's difficult for us to state what this was. We're looking back on a, a whole host of history. 
Where do we choose? What do, what do we pick from? There's lots of things to pick from that, that seem to be indicative of this. They knew. They lived it. John writes this just before Emperor Domitian is murdered. He's, he's on exile. Now he's going to be the, the, follow, the, the successor of Domitian is a guy by the name of Nerva. And Nerva's a nice guy. He, he sets everybody free. Uh, all the exiles, Christian exiles, everything. Uh, and we find that persecution comes and goes like this. Unfortunately, two years later, Nerva had a stroke, dies. And a guy by the name of Trajan takes over. Trajan was a particularly ruthless man towards Christians. And he began a 20-year persecution. Is it possible that, that in the midst of, of a dedicated persecution of Christians, God said, it won't be Philadelphia. Philadelphia is somehow going to escape. Possible. I think it's interesting. I, I don't know the answer. It could be a reference just in general to Again, following Domitian, eight persecutions over time that will happen up until the, what we talked about, Constantine forbidding it. And somehow throughout this whole period of time, Philadelphia escaping it. It could be a reference to waves of persecution in, in, uh, that are suffering that are going to take place, not necessarily by Romans, but but we are going to find this particular area of Turkey is going to be overrun by various groups. First, those that take over Rome and assault Rome. The, the Arabian hordes that come up, the Mongols that come over, eventually the Ottoman Turks. It could be a reference to a plague that will take place 160 years or so, or from 165 AD. So uh, almost within the lifetime of people who would read this, we'll go through a 15-year plague that takes up to about a quarter of the population of the Roman Empire. Consider that in the light of what we've experienced for the last year to, to, to reference as a reference work what significant things. It could be any one of these. It could be all of these. I don't know. But we look at the, the promise of God. That's the important thing here. It's not, not necessarily what thing it specifically refers to, but the promise of God. He says, I'm going to keep you however it was. And, and he says, and he references himself. We've talked about the, the different ones that that uh, that Dave that that um, that Christ represents himself through these different uh, these different pictures. He says the one who holds the key of David. What in the world does the key of David have to do with anything? It represents absolute authority to determine things. David was the king. 
And who took over for David? Solomon. Not the oldest, not the second oldest, not the third oldest. David had the power to determine his line of succession. And no one was there to say, you're not doing it the right way. You can't do that. That's not how it works. When God says, listen, I know the whole world is suffering and I'm just going to make an exception. Who's going to stop me? The emperor? No. I have that power. I have the key of David. I don't care about an emperor. Man, that's powerful. Isn't that awesome to have a, a God on your side that can say, eh, emperor. And he says, I will make a pillar in my temple. I forgot a book that I want to read an excerpt from. We're going to, as we go through the book of Revelation, there's a work that I'm going to reference, sometimes quote, sometimes just refer to. It is a, a three-volume set called The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon. It's notable because he was an atheist. And the things he writes, it's like, it's like John writing it, only here's an atheist. He writes in it, and I, I wish I could, I, I, if, I had, if I had thought to bring it, it it's, it's this verse, exactly. He talks about Philadelphia. And he talks about how, how in Turkey, under all of these, all of the, the the stuff going on in Western Turkey, and talking about the destruction of these other cities, cities that are that are ruined by some other force, whether it be earthquakes or whether it whether it be whatever all these other turbulent things or the the invasions over time, he talks about how this is his word. Philadelphia stands like a column, like a pillar. It's like, did he, just, did he just take that from the Bible? That, that throughout 2,000 years, Philadelphia has never ceased to exist as a city. And it has never ceased to have a Christian population. The weakest of seven churches. And God says, I'm going to do that. I've got it for you. That's impressive. And it, it, to me, it's more impressive that this is attested to by an atheist. God's promise of deliverance is real. They are a strange light. We're talking about lights. Each of these has a, an encouragement this is one of the churches that doesn't have anything negative to say about them, really, in terms of their character. He talks about their patient endurance. Now, we've, we've met another church that showed patience by Tyra. But this is apparently a church that goes above and beyond in that. Because there was less of an ability to do that 
there are times where I don't know if you if you can think of a situation. Probably you can pretty easily where you did not expect to be able. You were wondering if you were going to have the strength to get through a particular event or task. I mean, maybe physical exhaustion. Maybe just you've got to do something and you're physically exhausted. And all you can think about is quitting and you get through it somehow. And you're like, I don't really, you look back on you like, I'm not quite sure how I did that. That's this church. Why does this church get a pass that the others don't? Doesn't God love them too? It's interesting. Maybe it's just because they had shown so much with so little that God says, you're getting a reward for that. Or maybe it's because their quality is just exemplary, just, I mean, not just as a matter of context. You know, we might say, well, you know, this person got a, a 95 on their test and this person got a 70. But we consider the 70 higher because, my goodness, they usually get like 50s. Right? This, person gets a, this person usually gets a 92, get a 95, not so impressive. But maybe, maybe that's not the situation here. Maybe God's not just like, well, you've you done good with... Maybe this church that you would think should be getting a 70 is like getting a 99. Given what you have, you should not be where you're at. Maybe that's the deal. I don't know what this situation is and why God chooses. I think there's another option. And, and I think it's in here. Maybe it's because they will be more useful unscathed. And we go back to this. And go back to our text in verse 9. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews, they're not. I will make them come and bow at your feet and to know I have loved you. Some say worship. Obviously, we understand God was not going to make one group of people come and worship another group of people. But the humbling of a group of people, I think, is intended. There's another reference in here. talks about an open door. I want to talk about open doors very briefly. I've talked about this. This is one of those hobby horses I get on. If you've heard this before, you can tune out for the next couple of minutes. Open doors are not what we make them to be. Not in the scriptures. We misuse the concept of open doors. And the way we use the phrase open doors is to say, God, if you, um, 
if you want me to do this thing, or if this is your will, or some phraseology like that, do this thing for me, and that will know that you've opened a door for me, right? Essentially, God, please make this easy. And then I will know that this is what you want me to do. That's an open door. It's easy. It's open. I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. I've read this before. I know you've heard this before. It will not be the last time likely. In fact, you will find this one of several throughout the Bible. I think there's another one in Colossians. There's a couple like this. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 9. He says, I, I will, well, verse 8, he says, I will wait in Ephesus until Pentecost for a great and effective door or open door for effective service has been opened to me. And there are many adversaries. A great open door, but you're going to have a lot of problems getting through it. It is not easy. The open door is not where it's easiest. And that's the church here. You've got an open door. You've got an opportunity. I'm going to prevent some bad things from happening that would likely stamp you out. I'm not, God's not promising that no bad things will happen to this church. He's they're not going to be destroyed. They're not going to be wiped out. And we know that from history. The open door is not where the choices are easy. The open door is where you can be productive. And this is their light. This is what light God wants them. It's the light of opportunity. Sometimes, it's not the great character, the great virtuous thing that, that a church needs to fix, to shine. It's just that they need to take care and, and, and make use of their opportunities. And this church, this church is going to have an opportunity that, that the people who have hated them and oppressed them are going to need some help. And God says, that's, that's why I'm, that's the reason. You've been patient. You've endured. And this suffering isn't going to be, that, that's coming on the world. The Jews are going to feel it too. In 124 AD, 20, 20 some odd years after this, Jews are going to be kicked out of the city of Jerusalem. They're going to go all over the place. They didn't live in Jerusalem, and it was forbidden until the early 1900s. They went to all over the place. That says, now's your chance. Those people that hated you are going to come to you. They're going to need food. They're going to need whatever. 
in history, there's a man named Pliny the Younger. There's two Plinys. They were, I don't know, politicians and historians and whatnot. And we have some of their letters between them and emperors. And not specifically about Philadelphia, but, but one of them, the son, he, he's talking to one of the emperors. And he's, he's, I don't understand why you're persecuting them. He's not a Christian. He wasn't a Christian. But he, he sympathized with them. He's like, they're the most obedient people. They, they're the only ones to pay their taxes. They don't cheat on their taxes. They're the only ones that do everything you want to do. I don't understand why you're so brutal to them. The, the, this group of people in all of Rome show an example. And people paid attention to it. And as they were being executed, what ends up happening is they, the people who are going to the circuses and, and, and seeing gladiators kill these people start becoming sympathetic towards them. And this all leads up through these couple of hundred years to them without political influence, without all of this, being a part of bringing down the Roman Empire. It's an open door, but it is difficult. In fact, there's an interesting anecdote. Christians didn't involve themselves in the military. Now, a slightly different military than ours today. But there was a, one particular reason and we're going to look at this as we go through the book of Revelation. Their understanding of the book of Revelation was that Rome figured fairly centrally in it. And they had this idea that, that Rome needs to fall. Why would I join the military and help it succeed? <laughs> there was a problem with that, was that at the beginning, opponents of Christianity saw them as useless in some ways. Like, you don't do anything for us. What do you do? This is kind of why there was this animosity, though they paid their taxes, though they did. You know, you're not helping the victory of Rome. Like, no, the longer, the more we help you, the longer it takes for Rome to fall and we get to the good stuff. And so we go through this period of suffering because the world doesn't see the need for the church yet. But the time will come when they see the need. And that's, that's the moment. And he says, be patient, endure. Because the moment is coming when they finally will understand. And this is the encouragement as we leave. So often... We wonder what the point is. Why is this happening? Why would you let this happen to the church? This doesn't seem easy. This doesn't seem like what, what a loving God should let his church go through. How often did Philadelphia ask this? 
We're just a small church. We're just a weak church. We have nobody influential. Why would you let Why would you let us go through this? Why would why would we have to endure? God says, "Don't worry. I've got it under control. I'll protect you." So that in time when you've shown that you can survive through these difficult times, other people are going to wonder when they go through their difficult times how you did it. What did you rely on to get through those moments? That's when they will come and bow. That's when they will come and humble themselves, in other words. Well, Gnosticism didn't last that long. Gnosticism lasted about 150, 200 years, and it was over. And so our challenge is to, to look at our situations, whether as a church, we don't necessarily have the condition, at least yet, that, that this church had to go through, probably never will quite have what this era of time suffered. But the only way we're ever going to be usable by God, the only way we're ever going to have that light is to stay visible. If we disappear then two things are never going to happen. First of all, the world around us is never going to see us as useless because they're never going to see us. They, they first have to see us as useless. They, they first have to see us as, why in the world does that exist? They don't, they don't help us. They're not politically involved. They're not whatever, whatever, whatever. They're not filling the blank. They have to see us as useless. And not aligned with them. They have to see us different. So that when their stuff doesn't work, their ideas don't work, then they say, wait a minute, they're still there. They're still visible. They're still doing. They're still going to church. Right? They're still visible. How? They have to see us as useless. That's not a discouragement. God says, stay visible. I'll protect you. Just keep enduring.